Hello, and welcome to the IQT podcast. I'm Dylan George, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Caitlin Rivers, as a co-host for a special B-Next series on outbreak analytics and forecasting. You may be asking yourself, what is outbreak analytics and forecasting? Well, Caitlin and I will explore the topic with you. In this series, we will investigate what it is, how it has been used to help with pandemic response efforts, and what we need to improve these capabilities. Along the way, we will chat with a range of special guests who have developed or used advanced analytics for decision-making during outbreaks. These guests include world-class modelers that have worked to help understand pandemics and people who have been leading responses. We'll also talk with people working on technologies that could be useful for collecting, cleaning, aggregating, and analyzing data, the data that are needed for outbreak analytics and forecasting. So I think it'll be a fun series and we're excited about it and enjoy today's episode. Hello, everyone. My name is Dylan George. I'm a vice president at BNEX, which is the biodefense initiative from IQT focused on preparing for and mitigating biological threats that impact national security. I'm joined by the amazing co-host, uh, Dr. Caitlin Rivers, assistant professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and the Center of Health Security. Today, we are honored to be joined on the podcast by Dr. Tom Frieden, who has been a leading voice in public health for the past 30 years. Dr. Frieden was the health commissioner of New York City from 2002 to 2009, where he pioneered a number of initiatives ranging from tobacco control to a ban of trans fats. In 2009, President Barack Obama named him to be the director of the United States Centers of Disease Control and Prevention. During his tenure, he oversaw the CDC's response to another public health emergency of international concern, the Ebola epidemic in West Africa. Dr. Frieden now leads Resolve to Save Lives, an initiative of vital strategies. Resolve to Save Lives has been very influential in guiding public health policy during this pandemic. The reason we wanted to interview Dr. Frieden uh, for this podcast is that he is a great champion for the value of data and analytics in outbreak response. In a recent congressional testimony that Dr. Frieden gave with, in, in conjunction with Dr. Rivers, he said data is a very powerful weapon against this virus. Dr. Frieden, we know you have a great many demands on your time, so thank you for speaking with us today. I'm delighted to chat with you. First, I think we'd love to hear more about Resolve to Save Lives and hear more about its overall mission and the work you all have been doing specifically related to COVID. Well, thanks for asking. As I left CDC, I was fortunate to have support from three major philanthropies to launch Resolve to Save Lives. And we have two separate goals. One is cardiovascular health, and the second is reducing the risk of epidemics. In the cardiovascular health space, we've been working primarily uh, in Asia and also parts of Africa to implement effective hypertension treatment as well as other programs. In our epidemic prevention unit, we've been focusing on Africa. And since COVID emerged, we've pivoted to be essentially all COVID all the time and to begin work in the United States, which we had never planned on doing before. And what are specifically some of the activities that you're doing around COVID-19? I know you've been active in policy and also in supporting public health practice. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? At Resolve to Save Lives, we have an overall approach, which is to strengthen the public sector, to support civil society, and to establish monitoring systems that track whether or not progress is being made and can be used to both defend progress and 
increased accountability for accelerating progress. Our mode of operating is to focus on simplicity, speed, and scale. And in Africa, we've undertaken a wide range of activities, uh, including rapid response funds in 20 different countries, increasing the availability of data for action, including a 20-country survey that's led to policy changes, effective communication, rapidly countering misinformation, infection prevention and control, addressing inequalities and protecting highest risk populations, improving laboratory network functioning, and we embed staff in global and regional organizations to try to increase the effectiveness of those funds. In the US, we've had a somewhat analogous but adapted response, rapid response funds, public health technical assistance, communication, community engagement. We're working on a suite of digital tools, epidemiologic support, and sharing information among jurisdictions around the US as well as globally. But increasingly, we've played a public role because uh, there has been a gap in some public health recommendations. I heard you mention data for action, and that caught my ear because Resolve to Save Lives came out with 15 essential indicators for monitoring COVID-19. And my organization, the Center for Health Security, was happy to endorse those indicators. But I think we'd like to hear more about what motivated you to undertake that project and what the value is in collecting and standardizing these metrics. Thanks so much for asking and thanks for joining us in that release. We really appreciate Dr. Rivers, your leadership here. Uh, the really stunning fact is that six months into the pandemic in the US, we lack basic information on where the virus is community by community and how well our response is going. And until we have that information publicly available, it's unlikely we'll improve our response substantially. We think on the one hand, people have a right to transparency. You should know what your risk is in your community. And on the other hand, if we're going to get out of this more safely than we've done so far, we're going to have to be frank about how things are going in terms of testing, contact tracing, isolation, quarantine, all of the essential components of response. It was stunning to us that only 40% of COVID-19 data that mattered is reported publicly by US states. And this is not the fault of the states. States have not had the kind of federal support and guidance to get this done. Not a single state was reporting best practice criteria for 11 of 15 essential indicators, and more than half of states weren't reporting nine of them at all. And, and of course, this isn't the first time you've urged data to motivate action in a response. You were recently quoted as saying, what gets measured matters. Lots of COVID-19 data that get attention are either inaccurate, partial, or misleading. Collected, analyzed, and disseminated correctly, data can save lives and restore uh, livelihoods. Uh, first off, this is a great quote, and we wholeheartedly agree with it. Uh, you know, from your experience, what has led you to this opinion about the value of data in responding to outbreaks? And how else have you seen data and analytics used to effectively guide public health responses? In my experience over 30 years in public health, good public health responses use data to guide them how they are going to function. Great public health responses use data in real time. And going back to responses as varied as tobacco control in New York City or Ebola control in West Africa, 
the programs that do the best use data to improve performance. It's the lifeblood of public health. It's what we have. It's our strongest tool. It's what prevents us from continuing to do things that don't work. And it's what enables us to do what does work more and more and more. A great example in the US is this absurd focus on the number of tests done. This has been not only useless, it's actually been misleading because most of those tests are a charade. If they come back five days later, let alone seven or 10 or 14 days later, they're of very little or no use. And it's not a criticism of the commercial laboratories. They're dealing with a very difficult situation. They're not able to keep up. But really, if you take it from a public good perspective, why in the world will we pay something like a billion dollars this month to commercial laboratories to do tests that will have little or no public health benefit? And I have great confidence in the private sector. If we said we're going to pay $100 for a test that comes back within 24 hours, $75 for a test that comes back within 48 hours, $50 for a test that comes back uh, within 72 hours, and nothing for a test that comes back in more than 72 hours, they'd figure it out. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great, great suggestion. And I love it. Yeah. You're not wrong. <laughs> it feels like what I hear you describe, which I agree with completely, is as much progress as we've made in the area of data and public health and analytics, it feels like we still have a really long way to go. So I'm wondering what you think is needed to transform our public health analytics infrastructure to make sure that we have what we need to go from data to analytics to decision. Like, what's the next generation of that system look like? It's a great question. Let me focus on COVID. We really are hoping that these 15 essential indicators will start getting reported by most or all states. And that would put us all on the same page. So we would have two things. First, the equivalent of a pollen count in my county. How much virus is reigning in my area? And we really can't know that from the information out there because we don't have stratified by congregate outbreak associated versus other. So you don't know how much virus is spreading in the community. And second, you'd know how well is my community doing to control it? And let's be frank, right now, most communities aren't doing very well to control it outside of the Northeast. Uh, Hawaii, Alaska, a couple other places, we've got a lot of COVID all over the U.S. And one health officer said to me when we initially circulated a list of indicators like that, oh, if we were to report that, the result would be zero every day. And I thought, you know, first off, yes, it would be zero today and tomorrow and maybe for a week or two. But if you were reporting it and it were zero, then all of society, political leaders would say, hey, there's something wrong here. Let's fix it. And it wouldn't continue to be zero. So I do think we need to make data sing, make it apparent to people what it is. We also need better systems to collect and analyze data and a new generation of public health leaders who know how to sift data and know what's important and what's not. The art of data analytics is an art. It's not enough to have artificial intelligence. We also need human intelligence. Yeah, we couldn't agree more. It's a, we, we strongly support that, that, that statement. You know, Dr. Frieden, you're exceptionally good at communicating complex epidemiological ideas so that people can understand their risks. And more importantly, they can act to minimize their risks. 
what advice do you have about effective risk communications? Well, first, um, pay attention to what the CDC guidelines are. Be first, <laughs> be right, be credible, be empathetic, give people concrete things to do. These are all evidence-based guidelines. And second, figure out how to say it in one sentence in a few different ways. And think of explaining it to an elderly relative, mother-in-law or someone else, so that you really can explain it in a way that's going to be able to be understood. It's one thing to state it clearly. It's another to state it clearly in a way that will be understood. And all of us could always get better at this. Uh, analyze our own performance. It's a, it's a data-driven approach. See how we're being heard and responded to and understood. And ultimately, uh, try messages out and see what works. Great recommendations, yeah. I think for many of us, it's been a, a crash course in learning how to do this uh, during times of great crisis. So glad well, for the Dr. tips. Rivers, Dr. Rivers, you've become a model of doing this well. Uh, you've yes, uh, been able to develop a kind of voice and clarity that I think is enormously appreciated. I think that's why uh, you've been so effective. Uh, when you and I testified in Congress, I was just extremely impressed with your ability to give clear, meaningful, well-stated, and uh, incisive answers to tough questions. And you've done that on social media as well. So thank Amen. you for doing that. That's very kind. And I'm glad we have that recorded because I'm going to keep that one in my back pocket. <laughs> <laughs> so Dr. Frieden, as we come to the end of our questions here, the U.S. response is not going well. I think we can broadly agree that we want to be in a better place. We want to get our outbreak under control. What major recommendations would you would you give for the COVID response? What should we be doing differently to get to a better place? The U.S. unfortunately has become a global laggard. And part of the risk is that we may accept a level of COVID-associated illness and death that are just unacceptable in much of the world. So a lot of what needs to happen is for us to recognize that progress is possible. And beyond the data, beyond even the tragedies that COVID causes, one thing that we have to hold to is the optimism and clarity that we can get through this and we can get through it together. Public messaging is really important. A shared understanding of where we are is really important and recognizing that we have to be humble. There's a lot we don't know about this virus, and there's no one thing that's going to control it. Not staying home, not travel bans, not masks, not contact tracing, not testing, not even a safe and effective vaccine. The virus is here, and what we need to do is combat it. And we can do that with all of the above if we rely on data and use data to both learn what's working and hold all of ourselves accountable for doing better. Yeah, no, that's great. I think that's great advice. Uh, so what are you and Resolve to Save Lives working on now in the fight on COVID? Right now in the U.S., our focus is uh, supporting a handful of jurisdictions that we're partnering with. We hope to be able to support them to become demonstration areas where it'll be possible to see how COVID can be truly controlled. We're also providing ongoing guidance on schools, and we're rolling out these 15 essential indicators and really hoping to see a groundswell of states, counties, cities that will 
have a healthy competition of who's going to have more of them better sooner, and we're available to help them develop them as well. We'll be tracking over time how that's going state by state. Globally, we're working primarily in Africa, and we're extremely concerned about competing mortality because unlike in the US, in Africa, life is so much more tenuous. And without vaccination against measles and other killer diseases, treatment of malaria and other uh, deadly infectious diseases, we will see potentially millions of deaths that are associated with COVID, but not from COVID infection, rather from COVID's disruption of the global work. So we're uh, quite focused on trying to mitigate both COVID and the broader impacts of COVID, especially in lower income countries. It has been an absolute pleasure to talk with you today. Uh, thank you for taking the time to share your expertise, your experiences and advice on fighting COVID-19. Dr. Frieden, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you and thank you for the work that you do. You know, the world of people who really are passionate about data is pretty small. And uh, yes. the world would be a better place if that community continues to grow and we understand that data really is important to protecting all of us. Bill Fage, uh has said that public health is at our best when we see and we help others see the faces and the lives behind the data. Brilliant, yeah. Can't agree more, can't agree. Caitlin, as as always, wonderful to be with you as well, Caitlin. You as well. Thanks, Dylan. And thank you to the listeners for tuning in. Be safe, be well, be kind. Thank you for listening to today's episode as a part of the Be Next Outbreak Analytics and Forecasting series. Please make sure to subscribe to the IQT podcast on Apple Podcasts or on Podbean to be kept up to date on new episodes. For more information on BNEXT, visit www.bnext.org. A special thank you to Carrie Sessing and the absolutely wonderful Kristen Zender from IQT's marketing team, and to our friends at HeartCast Media for serving as our recording studio. Thanks for listening and take care. <laughs>